Experience the most delicious, entertaining, and bizarre parts of life in the big city with New York Magazine's collection of podcasts, available exclusively from Panoply. Tune into the Grub Street podcast for restaurant trends that'll soon be sweeping the country. Catch exclusive interviews with the stars of your favorite TV shows with the Vulture TV podcast. And check out Sex Lives for intimate discussions of sex in the real city. It's like taking a trip to New York from the comfort of your earbuds. Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV podcast. I'm Margaret Lyons and I'm here with Matt Zoller-Seitz. Hello. Gazelle will be back with us next week. On today's episode, we're talking about Sesame Street one of everyone's sort of childhood classic favorites, which has made a big shift in season 46 over to HBO. We're going to go way down the nostalgia hole, but first, if you have any questions or comments or ideas for topics you'd like to hear us discuss, leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673 or email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. So Sesame Street is now going to be airing first on HBO, and then nine months later, those same episodes will air on PBS just as per usual. The biggest shift is that the episodes are now half an hour rather than an hour long, although that started to be in play last year on PBS where the reruns in the afternoon were half an hour, so it's not new to HBO. Right. This came about because Sesame Street is pretty expensive to make. Basically, PBS couldn't afford and Children's Television Workshop needed a bigger sort of influx of cash to keep keep the lights on, and that's why you know, private investment comes in handy. And that's, right. that's sort of the shift to HBO starts with dollars. It's it's not it's not anything more special or less special than that. Right. And I think it's weird to try to sort of put monetary categories on something that feels like such a source of public presence. It's hard to realize that people have to pay the bills and, and Sesame Street has to keep its lights on too. Yes. Um, but then you sort of feel like you're Mitt Romney. <laughs> you know? Yeah, the you more you're do. like, well, you know, everyone has to have money. You're just like, no, capitalism, you're crushing me. It's just, it's <laughs> just gotten harder and harder for public television to raise the money necessary to do the kind of work that they want to do. It's just been, you know, you can all, you pretty much chart it on like a bell, <laughs> a bell graph, really. I mean, it's sad, do you but think, it's reality. Do you think moving to HBO matters? I guess you could mount an argument for, and I've heard this said about other public broadcasting institutions that move to cable, that, that, you know, there's something undemocratic about not having Sesame Street show up first on the public airwaves. You know, that like it basically isn't the deal that HBO gets it first and then yes. it goes to PBS. So it's not like you have to have HBO to get Sesame Street. It just means you're not getting it at the same time as everyone else. So... But I honestly, I don't really see what the big deal is, and especially if you're since the target audience is what two to two to four year olds. Yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I don't think they're reading broadcasting and cable. You know <laughs> what I mean? So it's fine. It's fine. You do what you have to do. I'm glad that HBO did this. It it seems a little. I guess it's not counterintuitive. They probably have an excellent commercial reason for having done it. But like, I don't immediately see how it makes sense for them. But it's great that they did it. I think it makes sense in the idea of. Not necessarily watching it when it's broadcast, but that it's part of the sort of HBO Go package. Because I think one of the shifts for, you know, everyone's programming is on-demand stuff and and time-shifted viewing for kids. You know, that feeling of you have to be sitting in front of your TV at whatever o'clock Sesame Street airs on on your PBS station. You know, that's <laughs> – right. we can already feel like that. Well, that can't be the way kids are still watching Sesame Street that's now. That's kind know? of not the way anybody's really watching TV 
now for the most part. And I think especially for kids programming, we're seeing a lot more segment by segment viewing, right? I think if you spent any time around a young child recently, it's not sit down in front of the TV and watch an entire movie. It's much more, can I use mommy's phone and watch this YouTube clip? Exactly. And also you get into a zone like when you're a kid where you want to watch everything of a particular type. And, sure. and in fact, just as recently as five or six years ago, I was at um, relatives' home, and it was filled with young children, including my son, who was a lot younger at the time. And I don't know how, but the subject of Cookie Monster came up. <laughs> and of course, there were a number of Cookie Monster playlists on YouTube, and we yeah. just called one of those up. And and I I swear to God, these kids—there were five, six of them—they they just sat there and watched Cookie Monster for like an hour because he is funny. Cookie Monster's pretty oh, funny. Yeah. You got to give it to him. <laughs> There's all these ways that I imagine kids watching TV, and the truth is that you're going to watch TV the way everybody else watches TV, you know, and that is going to be segmented now, and it's also going to maybe be more time with your own screen. So one of the shifts for the HBO model is – so the head writer left the show, and his sort of calling card was those pop culture parodies. Right. Right? So, you know, in recent years, we've seen, like, a fake house of cards. We've seen, like, lots uh, – a Homeland one I thought was really good, Homeland. That yes. was, a, I think, a particular <laughs> high watermark. Um, right. And the truth is that those were not for kids, per se, right? Those were the sort of – No. Even if they were communicating ideas about phonics or – preposition phrases or whatever, that that really those were jokes in there for parents to sort of maintain that level of like sanity and dignity when you're watching children's programming. And I think one of the shifts is kids are not necessarily watching on the same TV that their parents are watching. No. And that was something, you know, what you were saying earlier about how television has become, whereas it used to be more of a group activity, if only by virtue of the fact that it was a large appliance and it was in your living room and people in your house were moving around within the house. So yeah. you had maybe one, two, however many people were sitting there and their main purpose was to watch whatever was on TV. But then there would be other people who were moving around. You know, maybe they're only in the room for a few minutes. Maybe they're sort of standing kind of in the back folding laundry or they're in the kitchen doing dishes and they sort of hear the TV show, but they don't see it. Yeah, or someone's um, sitting at the dining room table finishing a project, but right, right. two people are watching the show. Yeah. And that's increasingly not the case. Like now television has become something – watching TV has become a little bit more like reading, which is which is probably one of the many reasons why serialized TV and, and a more complex form of storytelling has become popular because it is – it's a solitary thing, and you can kind of watch and learn at your own rate. You know, you don't have that problem when you're watching TV with a group where a certain number of people are following the show just fine, but there's one person who's like, I don't understand what just happened. <laughs> yeah. Explain it to me. You know, yeah, I don't know the... why I just tried to sound like Letterman is a hayseed, <laughs> yeah. but you know what I mean. Yeah, and I think, you know, certainly that was true in my house that, like, there was the TV in the living room, and that's what we watched. And so that meant, you know, my little brother's a lot younger than I am, so when he was little and he was watching Sesame Street – for himself, I was in high school. And then the flip of that is when I was watching, I don't know, Sex in the City, he was like nine and still kind of like, <laughs> he's like, oh, he doesn't understand. And he's like, I understand. And like, no. so no you know, more you than that, they let on. You have that yeah. sort of weird flip of like, well, we all watch the same things. Why my dad's seen, you know, every episode of Melrose Place, but it's also why I've seen every episode of Homicide. Right. Um, exactly. Which is not of... which is not such a bad thing. But the <laughs> but the but the solid the increasingly solitary or one to one experience of watching a TV show. That so that makes sense that things like the pop culture parodies don't are not 
really considered viable or necessary anymore because, you know, that was for mom and dad who happened to be passing through the room while the kids were watching Sesame Street. And they're like, yeah, I know I've heard, you know, Rubber Ducky, You're the One and, and you know, the pinball machine and all the, all the, all the bits that they've been playing continuously since 1968. But – Game of Thrones parody, you, you're like, oh, that's for me. Thanks, Sesame Street. <laughs> yeah. So the truth is that they've stopped airing as many of those old segments in the last sort of 10 or 15 years. That has become less and less and less. And now we're at a point where it barely exists at all. So in addition to only being half an hour over the last mm, like 14 or 15 years, Sesame Street segments themselves have gotten longer. And it's weird because I think a lot of us have that idea of like, oh, Sesame Street is why like people of our generation have short attention spans because those segments are so short. Uh, what they learned was that kids actually have uh, longer attention spans than they thought. And so Sesame Street segments have gotten longer. And the kinds of stories that would usually be broken up over several segments throughout the episode are now told in much larger chunks. And so bringing it down to half an hour, making those story segments longer, there isn't that same like recycling of of segments. I remember for a while I was like, babysitting a lot and my cousins were little and my brother was little and it felt like every time I watched Sesame Street I would somehow catch here fishy 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 like that segment <laughs> would just like always like somehow come back up and I was like oh this is my weird superpower but, like if I manage to catch an episode of Sesame Street it always has this segment and that doesn't happen anymore when I watched the new HBO episodes that was one of the first things I noticed I hadn't you know I don't have children I haven't been a regular Sesame Street watcher in in a long time this is a safe space you could admit it if you are <laughs> no, I'm not I mean that said like I I obviously have like you get a song stuck in your head and you're like, I got to hear this one. Like, yeah. There's no cure for this other than just like hearing like I need to listen to you if Moon was cookie. Like I have to hear it. <laughs> or yeah. um, and then sometimes even like the sort of sweeter, sadder songs like I'd like to visit the moon. That, oh, that's... my God. Well, I'd like to visit the moon on a rocket ship high in the air. Yes, I'd like to visit the moon. But I don't think I'd like to live there Though I'd like to look down at the earth from above I would miss all the places and people I love So although I might like it for one afternoon I don't want to live on the moon Do you have any like strong associations with Sesame Street? Do you feel like it's a show you carry in like a tender regard or is it something you could sort of take or leave? Well, I'm, you know, Sesame Street began its regular run in 1968, which happens to be the year of my birth. So, so you know, I'm a Sesame Street baby. I'm totally a Sesame Street baby. And so I'm always going to have a special regard for that. And I don't even know how long I've been watching Sesame Street because, you know, it, it became ubiquitous very, very quickly and probably I was watching it when it was on. I mean, I don't know. But I, I do know that I continued to watch it far past the point when somebody like me should be watching Sesame Street. And it was because of the craft of it. It was the entertainment value of it. And particularly because I was really into puppets. I was really into puppets and puppetry and special effects and creatures and stuff. You know, so, so you know. Oh, it hits I, a sweet spot. <laughs> it really does. And, you know, I went through a period where I was, uh, you know, as a kid, I was into Star Wars and, and stuff of that nature. And there's there's creatures in that. And then, you know, you get to the second Star Wars movie and there's a creature you know, Yoda, who is uh, performed by the same person who did Miss Piggy, you know, who started out on The Muppet Show. So there's a continuity there. There's a mm. sense of continuity where these are all a kind of they're, – they're all variations of the same kind of entertainment. I think there's a big – I don't think it's any huge surprise that Jim Henson's Creature Shop hooked up with George Lucas, you know, and was making uh, puppets for his movies and stuff. 
and my brother is three and a half years younger than me, so <clears throat> I had an excuse to be watching this stuff when I was in theory too old to be watching it. But then, and then I got to college, and uh, you know, you discover uh, marijuana, and then Sesame <laughs> Street is really interesting again. Uh, you know, and and you have a you have a whole new appreciation for let's say uh, the layers, the layers of Sesame Street. It's deep, it's deep. All of a sudden, you're like, <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> Cookie Monster's a drug addict. <laughs> you know, this is a this is a metaphor for addiction, dude. You know, and then wow. there's and then there's the knock on the door, and I'm sorry, we're we're traveling too far down the rabbit hole. But anyway, Sesame Street. So you do carry it in a. In I, I carried it in a high regard. Oh boy. I knew we were going to have to get to a dad joke, and we got to. We one. did. We did. <laughs> you know, the the only shock is how long it took. <laughs> uh, it's funny. I. Like rewatching, so I I reviewed the new episodes of Sesame Street, and I spent a lot of time watching Sesame Street in the last couple of in the last week or so, and um, and it's strange. I think we have I had this idea of like how political Sesame Street used to be, and you know, there's segments of um, Jesse Jackson being on the show and and having the kids do this like this call and response uh, mantra I, about like I am somebody, I am somebody, yeah. I remember that. I am, I am somebody. I may be poor. I may be poor. But I am. I may be poor. Somebody. Somebody. I may be young. I may be young. But I am. But I am. Somebody. Somebody. I may be on welfare. I may be on welfare. But I am. But I am. Somebody. Somebody. I may be small. I may be small. But I am. But I am. Somebody. Somebody. It's hard to picture that happening on Sesame Street now. You know, I. It's. It's impossible to picture that happening on Sesame Street now. Well, there's a cultural con- – the cultural context of Sesame Street is really interesting. And, like, this is one of these areas where, like, I have certain pet areas where I just am ob- kind of obsessed and I try to, you know, get all – buy all the books that I can about this particular thing. One of them is Sesame Street, Jim Henson, which is kind of on the same axis, you mm-hmm. know. And um, Sesame Street had a political sensibility. It had a political and cultural sensibility, and it tried not to be too brazen about it because they didn't want to upset conservatives. But the entire idea of Sesame Street originally was to give kids in the city something to associate with and latch onto that reflected their experience. And this idea of, you know, Sesame Street was. Probably New York. They never said it's New York, but that's what it looked like. And the opening segment was shot in New York, and the show was shot in New York. And it's a it's a block somewhere in New York. You mm-hmm. know, it's maybe it's the Lower East Side, maybe it's the Upper West Side. It's probably not a rich neighborhood, probably not a poor one either. But you just can't really tell. But there's something def- definitely East Coast about it. People aren't driving cars; they're walking down the street. They go next door to talk to their neighbor. They have conversations on stoops they and live things in like that. Yeah. They do. They live in apartments and. And there are people of all uh, races and ethnicities, and there are different languages being spoken. And and nobody comments on this. This isn't considered unusual at all. And and yeah, I grew up in Dallas, which is a multiracial city, but also a highly segregated one. So you know, it's not like living in most neighborhoods in New York where you get an experience of different cultures like every day, every hour. You know, so it was nice to see that and think like, wow, I wonder what kind of place that would be like where you would hear. All these different languages being spoken like right there on your block and there's all these people of different experiences interacting and, and Muppets, <laughs> you know, plus Muppets. I mean, I 
I do think it is sometimes remarked upon that people are of different races and ethnicities. I watched an episode. It's probably from like the mid-90s-ish because yeah. it's uh, Savion. Uh, Savion Glover is one of the cast members and it's Savion and Gina and their best friends. And they get a phone call and someone – like they, we don't hear the phone call but we see Gina's reaction to it and she's very upset. And someone had called and said like, uh, you know, people of different races shouldn't be friends. And, and they sort of explore that idea. Oh, I don't episode. remember this one. Yeah, I, I didn't remember it. I came across it while <laughs> devoting my life to Sesame Street for the last <laughs> couple of days. And I was really struck by like, oh, I didn't realize Sesame Street was going to still take stuff up on sort of like that directly. Uh, and, you know, this is 20 years ago, so it's not a fresh episode per se. But um, yeah. but I was very taken by it. It was interesting. And they sort of explain it in this very kid way, obviously. And it really upsets Telly, who I think is like the sort of anxiety monster for everybody. He totally I, is, yeah. Uh, he's, he's the Eeyore of Sesame Street. Well, I don't think that he's necessarily morose. I think he just like feels very comfortable saying what he's worried about. Mm, yeah, that's um, true. That's a good distinction, yeah. And so I think that, like, one of the roles he plays is to try to help kids articulate what's upsetting them, right? Yeah. And so he gets very freaked out because his best friend is is Little Bear. And, you know, they sort of, like, talk through all of the ways that, like, you know, what is scary and who gets scared of what and, and what are assumptions people make. And, and it was very, you know, touching. And, and, and at the same time, you're sort of like, ugh, I wish we didn't have to teach kids how to cope with racism. Yeah, uh, so yeah. you're, on the one hand, very gratified that there is something that is trying to do that. And on the other hand, you know, it makes you sad about the state of America. They, they've always been very good about very subtly bending or stretching to accommodate subjects and and areas and emotions that maybe they didn't deal with before and of course the most famous example of that is is uh, the death of Mr. Hooper. Oh god. Which is <laughs> remarkable. And yeah. I just rewatched that not too long ago um because you're punishing yourself? No, because it was in that documentary about Carol Spinney. Oh yeah. Which is really one of there's some extraordinary moments. Carol Spinney's career is amazing. Uh, I mean, he it's he has been called upon to carry the heart and soul of everything Jim Henson was a part of on many occasions and that was one of them. Yeah. Like that's like that's the the first death of a major character on Sesame Street and the person that he was closest to is Big Bird so therefore it falls upon Big Bird to bear the weight of that particular event. Once they had made the decision not to pretend that it hadn't happened, which is pretty remarkable that yeah. they decided not to. They could have just said Mr. Mr. Hooper moved away to Florida yeah. or whatever. They didn't do that. They did a whole episode where they dealt with the fact that Mr. Hooper wasn't coming back. And um, Carol Spinney's performance in that was just exquisite. Um, and uh, there was that. And then there was the um, the change. And again, here we go again. Big Bird. Mr. Snuffleupagus, Big Bird's once imaginary friend, right? Mm -hmm. Big Bird used to have conversations with him and then he would leave and then he would say, oh, Mr. Snuffleupagus was just here. And everybody would say, no, that's ridiculous. He's a figment of your imagination. They changed it, and what they, yeah. wasn't it like something to do with... It was in the mid-'80s, um, and I think it was to... Uh it was at a time when there was all the sort of like daycare uh, sex abuse panic. Stories. It was right. It was the McMartin preschool case, and like yeah, there was all this hysteria of child sexual abuse and satanic molestation and all that business. Right. So Would in you... addition to those sort of uh, more extreme examples, it is also important that children can tell grownups and people who are safe that that they were being abused. Right. So we're not right. saying that like oh, yes. it's part of hysteria or, or simply like, just you know in a more basic level, children need to feel that they will be believed. Yeah, and I think there was a worry that because as we're trying to get to a place where 
you know, God forbid if something happened to a kid that they would they would feel that the people in authority would be able to trust them and help them. Um, watching right. Big Bird sort of not have that same uh, culture was they I think says me I know that they've spoken openly about this. They were worried that this was setting a sort of fraught example and they wanted to make sure that kids knew that um, that people would believe them if they told them things that were true. And and so because we had known that Snuffy was real, right, we'd seen them interact that they sort of shifted to he is real and and people believe Big Bird. Yeah, I have to say there's something else that I think maybe hasn't gotten, Sesame Street hasn't gotten proper credit for, which is teaching little kids, particularly little boys, that it's okay to talk about their emotions. It's okay to talk about their feelings. And it, and it's really hard to underestimate the importance of that, particularly the first couple of generations that grew up with Sesame Street. You know, my generation that grew up with Sesame Street, we, like at the time when the 70s was happening when I was a kid, there was all this talk about how everybody was sensitive now. Men were so sensitive. Men had become feminists. Wasn't that hilarious? You know, they might as well be wearing a dress, blah, 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 blah. It was like there were all these sort of like knee-jerk signifiers of if you're not a, a stoic tough guy, you're either macho, you're, you're either gay or a girl. Like that, that was the messages that were being like pumped like toxins into the minds of little boys. And not only that, but those things are terrible things to be. Exactly. And, and, and here's Sesame Street. And Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, which is oh. usually in the same time slot, mm -hmm. and uh, the Electric Company, and uh, Via Legre, which I don't know if you remember that one too, were countering that. And there were other shows that were countering that as well, but they weren't aimed at kids. And you know, every single week here on Sesame Street, you have human characters and Muppets, who are the stand-ins for children of various ages, running into problems, having crises, having whatever happened to them. And, uh, and someone comes up to them and says, hey, you look sad. What's going on? And they start to talk, and no one judges them for talking about their feelings. Nobody says, you're, you know, keep it to yourself. What's the matter with you? Stop being a whiner. Suck it up. <laughs> and that's something that's said to girls, too, a lot. Sure. You know, I mean, but uh, but uh, really, like, I think it's a net positive for the culture that, that these shows, and particularly Sesame Street, were leading the charge to sort of normalize um, <laughs> not being a tight, sphinctered, self-hating <laughs> You know, like <laughs> destructive person. Really, I really think it's just horrible. Like the way uh, kids uh, are social have been socialized in this country. It's great that it's changing, and certain works of popular culture helped with that. And Sesame Street is one of them. I will also throw in "Free to Be You and Me." Oh yeah, with the like very on the nose example here of "It's All Right to Cry" being one of the major songs in "Free to Be You and Me." Yeah. What's hard though is like that came out forty years ago. You know, right? Uh, when we talk about things changing. It's like, Jesus, how long is this supposed to take? Like, yeah. Free to Be You and Me is 40 years old. It is. Um, and I think its messages are still very relevant. And I think many people could still learn a lot from Don't Dress Your Cat in an Apron about, you know, gender rigidity. But yeah. <laughs> uh, that's true. That's true. It's hard. I think it, it sometimes can feel a little frustrating. It's like, OK, well, shouldn't that generation of people now be the people in charge of things. And if that's true, like, we have so much more work to still be doing. Right. And obviously, you know, we do. But it's like, yay, aren't we so lucky that we grew up so enlightened? It's like, I don't know. <laughs> well, that's the thing that I harp on a lot is this idea that, like, you know, we – every single generation, no matter what generation you're in, you need to get over yourself. I mean, like, <laughs> there's a sense of, like – and I've seen it now, you know, I'm, I'm coming up on 50 pretty soon here – 
And I've seen it over and over and over again. Like whatever generation is coming up and claiming the the cultural megaphone thinks – It's the Batman it deserves. They think it's the Batman it deserves. It's <laughs> actually horribly true. <laughs> but I was going to say thinks they are the most enlightened generation ever and that all this, all this shit has been solved or is in the process of being solved thanks to them. And like every generation has thought that and they were always wrong. There's always things like, well, you're concentrating on this. There's all of these other things that you're not paying attention to. Sure. And, and so it's funny when you look back on Sesame Street from, you know, the, the 70s and 80s, you are going to find things that maybe by today's standards are not uh, considered acceptable for children. I mean, there was a lot of like um, very early on, there was some physical shtick, which was funny, but a lot of involved kind of slapstick violence of the ch- Punch and Judy variety. Like mm-hmm. they weren't like beating the crap out of each other or anything, but there was a lot of like... You know, scaring people, playing pranks on people, some sort of comic, you know, punch outs and stuff like that. I mean, there was more of it on The Muppet Show, but a little bit on Sesame Street, and they don't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, because they, they don't want to so, they don't want to send – they realize that at a certain point that every single thing they did was sending messages. I also think something that comes up a lot on older Sesame Street episodes is kids being home alone more. Yeah. You know, and just like that being a lot less common now and, and right. the sort of – Cultural standards around how old you have to be to walk home from school by yourself have, yeah. have changed a lot. Um, and so some of those sort of independence building segments feel strange, you know, because like I remember being in elementary school and being allowed to ride bikes with my friends down the street and, and uh, walk home from school and, yeah. you know, like that being a normal part of a kid life. And now when I think about like, oh, if I saw an eight year old walking down the street, would I be like, that's normal. Like, well, oh. yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, that's like, that's a that's a that's a sensitive area for me because I I always my kids were always a lot more independent than a lot of kids their age and and uh, I I was judged for that. I was you know like sure. send I would send my son when he was seven or eight years old. I'd send him down to the corner store to get a sandwich or you know whatever, and it was like a block block and a half away, and he'd come back with the change and the sandwich. You know, it was fine. I thought it was like a little adventure in you know self sufficiency. And you get a sandwich. And you get a sandwich out of it. But, yeah, you it, you don't see kids walking by themselves as much as you used to. You do think it's weird. So we asked people to write in and call in with some of their favorite Sesame Street segments. And by far the one that came up the most was Pinball, the number 12 song. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. So this one's from Leah, and she told us that her absolute favorite is one where Kermit directs Oklahoma, and the dude gets the vowel wrong every time. <laughs> so yeah, that's the one where it's like Oklahoma, Oklahoma. Hey, Oklahoma, where the wind comes looking down on me. Oh, did I come in too soon? No, forgetful, you came in at no, you came in at the right time, but you sang the wrong thing. You see, you sang Oklahoma. And you're supposed to sing Oklahoma. I love that one. It's actually funny. I think <laughs> it's weird. As a kid, you sort of absorb all of these songs and segments and stuff without realizing that they're references to anything. Yeah. And then as an adult, when you hear the real version, you're like, oh, my God, what? So I'm in um, a, a Broadway musical theater workshop class, and our professor was talking about uh, birds do it, bees do it. And I was like, let's do it. Let's lay an egg. And it's like, <laughs> oh, that's that's not – 
It's a real song. It's not about laying eggs. That's not the words. Um, and I just, it was like, sh- like my much, much clearer, stronger association was let's lay an egg rather than let's fall in love. Yes. And I was so close to like very loudly embarrassing myself among all these like super hardcore Broadway music. They did a lot people. of that. They did a lot of that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I think, you know, I understand the shift away and making it more kid focused, but I do really like discovering that like letter B was actually a riff on a song, right? And not just a Muppet, like not yes. just a Sesame Street thing, that this was in reference to something or that Monster Peace Theater was hmm. a parody. Hello, me, Alistair Cookie. <laughs> yeah. Good evening. Alistair Cookie here. Me delighted to welcome you to Monsterpiece Theater. I had no idea. And then I saw the real, uh, there was a guy named Alistair Cook. I discovered that much later. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was like in high school, I think. And I was like, this is a thing? <laughs> right? And, and I think those little sort of connection moments are fun. And, and I do mourn the loss of that to a certain degree. You know, I think when people talk about everything is very Elmo focused now and and it's true the new episodes are very devoted <laughs> to Elmo, but I do think that these pop culture parodies are a big loss. Well, to the parents. You know. Well, yeah, but even as a kid, like it's fun to have those moments. I don't, well, yeah, I don't wish I didn't have them. No, you're moving and also you're moving forward. You know, you're not just being entertained at your level. You're being entertained above your level, and you don't know it yet. Yeah, and you're also that's being... kind of exciting. It's like The Simpsons practices its own version of that. Oh like my a couple, god, a couple of layers up. There's so many things that I learned from The Simpsons that I thought were The Simpsons, <laughs> and then you're like, oh, like the, I mean, I must have seen hundreds of episodes of The Simpsons before I ever saw Citizen Kane, and <laughs> that's a real aha moment. Yeah, my my <laughs> my son actually asked for the Psycho soundtrack for Christmas one time. He'd never seen the movie, but it was because The Simpsons used pieces of it in all these different episodes. And he finally said, "Dad, what is that piece of music? And what which one?" He's like. Tsh, tsh, well, that's a little movie called Psycho. <laughs> I do think... Like Tacey Kasem, <laughs> with intent to kill. I think, though, that we wind up having people assume that things on The Simpsons are references. Yes. For example, the name um, Jebediah. Right. <laughs> that's that's just... That's not from the Bible. People no. think that's from the Bible. That's just made up from The Simpsons. <laughs> um, and, you know, there were 19 children named Jebediah last year. It's not from the Bible. And, <laughs> and I just need people to know that... that even though The Simpsons contains this many references. This has been a public service announcement from, from Margaret Lines. Main Corner. <laughs> Seriously, that's not from the Bible. And that's a, you know, perfectly cromulent name if you want it. But There were great, yeah, but there were a lot of great uh, pieces of music. And, and Sesame Street's ability to generate unbelievably catchy pieces of music should not be underestimated. And it wasn't just the song parodies, but, you know, think like things like, like Put Down the Ducky. Put Down the Ducky! I wonder how many saxophone players have had to put up with that. And the opening song actually, too, is really an earworm, and it's gone through so many different incarnations. You know? I also was very struck. I saw Hamilton recently, and, and Lin-Manuel Miranda has written a lot of stuff for Sesame Street, and many of the people in the cast and people involved in the pit have also contributed a lot of music stuff to Sesame Street. So uh, if we think about like where do our great musical theater ideas come from, 
The truth is one of them is literally Sesame Street. One of them, yeah, Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood uh, for people of a certain age. There was a lot of music on that and uh, um, The Simpsons. I mean, yeah, there's like five or six sort of factories for musical appreciation if you're not already into musicals, and those were a few of them. Oh, another one that got a couple of mentions on Twitter was the Crayon Factory, which I think (laughs) a lot of us... That's great. (laughs) Okay, here's one. This is from uh, Hannah. As a chubby child, I was both enamored of Ernie and of food, so the clips that stuck so much in my mind involve both. One of them is the incredible scene of Ernie ordering the biggest ice cream in the world, which ends in tragedy, which is (laughs) kind of amazing. And uh, also, she also mentions the one where Ernie can't find anything with which to write a shopping list, so eventually he uses chocolate pudding. <laughs> Actually, if you had asked me to, like, name every Sesame Street segment I could remember, I would never have gotten to that one. But when she yeah. wrote it, I was like, oh, yes, I totally remember that it's one. It's great. And, and I do love the way that they built traditional – there are some really great sort of traditional comedy sketches, particularly in the first, like, 10, 20 years of the show. And a lot of them involve Grover. Yeah. The, the running bit where – and Grover – just because Grover had one of the greatest slow burns since, like, the heyday of <laughs> Edgar Kennedy, you know, is unbelievable. And there was a this recurring sketch where he would go to – he was a waiter in a restaurant. Oh, yeah. Remember this? And, and the that, guy with the fly in his soup and yeah. the sort of curmudgeon <laughs> – yeah, sure. It was great. It was just great. And – um and a lot of the Bert and Ernie stuff also had the rhythms of uh, sort of your classic two-reeler in the kind of, you know, Laurel and Hardy vein. Oh, I think a lot of Sesame Street segments are like this very precise, like Second City-esque, perfect scenario of what a sketch is. We have our yes. introduction of the world. We have our introduction of the problem. The problem heightens yes. usually three times. It gets more and more extreme. That introduces a transformation, which introduces a solution. And then the thing that Sesame Street does very well that I think oftentimes modern sketch neglects is we test the veracity of that solution. So that's why so many right. Sesame Street sketches end with sort of feeling of here we go again. Yes. Right? Like that, that the way we solve this problem is not effective. And that's why, you know, we have Grover go through all of this stuff and then it's like, oh, okay, it finally worked. And then it's like, waiter. It's like, oh, okay. And now we're back to square one. Exactly. We, we have that little button in it. That's well, really and also that's the way, that's, that, that's the classic, like, foolproof way to make a child laugh. Yeah. Is to come up with something funny that they, you know, they, you know to say, don't do that. <laughs> no, whatever you do, don't do that. And of course, the doing of that is increasingly hilarious to the child, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, and 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 also just the idea I like you say of getting of ending up back where you started is funny too. I will say so in watching all these Sesame Streets, I was really struck by how not irritating Sesame Street is, and I think that's a really rare, precious thing among children's programming. So uh, I was recently visiting some friends, and my he's not my biological nephew, my sociological nephew who calls me auntie, but um, <laughs> you know we were watching a lot of his shows, and it was brutalizing like you know and I was like happy that he was happy and they're like oh he loves this one and it was true he totally did yeah. but I was like man Paw Patrol you are making this fucking hard <laughs> like like some of those you know you get really really drained by I, I find Peppa the pig to be tough um Kalu the that one, Daniel Tiger, I can't handle. I gotta like, say, I've aged, I, I, I've graduated out of these. Thank I God. I feel like now that a lot of my friends are having children, I've been like <laughs> it's encountering. Like done. It's like done. I'm, I'm done. I'm yeah. done. I put in. I, I, I did my. I did my tour. I'm not signing up for another <laughs> one. <laughs> and just realizing like how how grating a lot of them are, and and yeah. certainly songs from Sesame Street get stuck in your head, and the more you sing them, obviously, like they can get a little taxing, but not to the same degree that you know. 
at a certain point when Dora is imploring you to help her, you're just like, I don't want to help you. <laughs> I know. Um, like, right. Stay at the bottom of the pit, kid. It's so easy to get maxed out on those other shows. Ultimately, there are other shows that deal with, you know, how to experience feelings and how to be a good neighbor and, and how to say your alphabet and, and count and and how to put word sounds together and stuff and phonics and stuff like that. But a thing that Sesame Street does that I don't think other shows do anywhere close to as well is it's watchable for adults. And I understand that its point is not to target adults, but if you're ever in the position of caring for a child, you spend a lot of time doing what they're doing, you know? Yeah, you do. And they're they're good role models. And the way that the show has always been structured is, you know, the Muppets are the children. And sometimes there are children who are also children, but usually Mm -hmm. it's the Muppets who carry most of that burden. And the uh, adults are parents. They're like, you know, they're not officially the parents, Sandy, but basically they're the parents on the show and they're good parents. They're all very good parents. We don't have any like neglectful, abusive, you know, whatever kind of parents. Like they're they're only, you know, to one degree or another exemplary parental figures, like figures of guidance. They're not all uh, brilliant or perfect or anything like that, but they they listen. They listen to the kids. Uh, They actually care. They try to come up with a solution that is right for the Muppet, a.k.a. the child, and not necessarily what they would do. It's really great. And, you know, I would say subconsciously, like, to the degree that it's capable to learn anything in this life, I probably learned a little bit about parenting from watching Sesame Street, even though it wasn't presented that way. Sure. And the kids, and, and you know, you were saying, like, how surprisingly not annoying <laughs> Sesame Street is. I think a lot of that comes from the fact that these these uh, these Muppets are characters. They're actual characters. Like, they're really, like, as well-drawn as any character that you would see on a live-action show. Like, they're, and they're not just defined by one trait. They have all these little idiosyncrasies that, that make them funny, that make them charming. And, you know, Bert, Bert and Ernie and, and Prairie Dawn and Cookie Monster and all of these characters, they're comic characters. They're classic comic characters in that they have particular blind spots, particular tendencies, and you keep expecting them to. You're waiting for that moment where they, they're going to fall into the same sort of trap that they always fall into and are they going to make are they going to get out of it this time you know are they going to solve the problem that they're presented with will they be able to do it on their own or are they, are they going to require help and uh, all of these are just your classic comic situations and uh, because they're not one note because they're these really surprisingly rich little notes of complicated psychology in these characters like Oscar the Grouch like talk about a character who should have been one note <laughs> Oscar the Grouch should have been just uh, just uh, a grouch and that's it but there's something i always thought a kind of um uh, very touching about Oscar like like you really sense his me- you sense his melancholy and his intelligence too sure cuz he experiences a full range of emotions yeah it's just within a different context, right? Like he experiences joy and sadness and frustration and satisfaction, and it's just not from the avenues that you would expect. Yes. But it's not that he's always mad. No, and he's an introvert. He's an introvert. He's in, you know, he he likes to be in his can. He <laughs> likes to be in his can, and it bothers him that other people don't, you know, would judge him for that. You know, <laughs> I, I get that. I get that. There's a there's a little bit of grouch in me, probably. I you can know. tell by the way your eyes lit up when you were like, he likes to be in his can. And it was like, Matt being like, me too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. And I love that uh, Carol Spinney is also the voice of Oscar the Grouch. And, you know, you think about what that entails when Oscar the Grouch and Big Bird are in the same scene. <laughs> I got to tell you this, this, this story about the time I visited Sesame Street. I was doing a story on the 30th anniversary of Sesame Street, 1998. And uh, I got to go to the set in Astoria, 
and uh, meet a lot of the Muppet performers, and I got to watch Big Bird shoot a scene, and I had no idea how complex this suit is. Like, it's as complicated as, like, RoboCop. And they had people who were helping Carol Spinney on with his with his uh, Big Bird outfit, and he has this monitor that's strapped to his chest that he looks down, and he can see his actions. It's like a remote camera, and it's showing him how his character is moving across the set so he can make judgments. And then he has his lines taped to the inside of Big Bird's throat, and there's a little light there so that he can read them. And uh, it's just amazing. And so he does several takes of this sketch, and then they help him off with his Big Bird, um, the, the headpiece. And the arms, but he's still got the bottom half on with the feathers <laughs> yeah. and the giant floppy feet. And then he, uh, the publicist gestures to him and he comes over. He walks over to me with those big old floppy feet and extends <laughs> his hand and he says, he says, Matt, Carol Spinney. And I burst into tears. <laughs> I burst into tears. I was 30 years old. I was like, <laughs> and he says, and I said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. This has never happened to me before. Uh, like, you know, and it hadn't. I'd never had that reaction to anything before. And it was his voice. It was that Proustian Madeline of Big Bird's voice. And and he said and he said uh, he said it's okay. It's not the first time. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure it's I'm sure it I'm wasn't. I'm sure it's not. I'm sure it wasn't. I'm sure it happens like every two days on the set of Sesame <laughs> yeah. Street. The only time I've done something like that, it's sort of similar circumstances. I was interviewing uh, Linda Ellerby about Nick News because oh, I used yeah. to like love love that. And I was in my twenties. You know, I was like an adult, and sh- and I was like very. You know, she's a very accomplished person. It's not just that she did Nick News for so long. And she was like, you know, sometimes grownups tell me they still like to watch the show, and I just burst into tears. <laughs> I was like, I still do like to watch Nick News. And like, I just, just like started crying. And she was like, oh, you know, that that happens sometimes. And I was like, oh. Mm, I'm ashamed, <laughs> but I couldn't help it. I'm I'm actually crying right now. <laughs> That's, you are. I will testify to that. I will testify to that. Probably not the first time I've come to tears on this podcast. No, Just it's cause... but it's usually because of my puns. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think there's something so you know, so immediate and so strong about our associations with what we watched and cared about as kids that you can't. Even if I was to find a very, very good kid show that's now, you know, yeah. my brother was little. He was really into Blue's Clues. I think Blue's Clues is a total I was into, I was into Blue's Clues because my daughter was the right age to be watching Blue's Clues. So and, I watched Blue's Clues. So we watched and a lot I of— And I admired Blue's Clues. Oh. That show was put together like a ma. I mean, it was unbelievable. <laughs> that was a good show. I liked it. Um, and even though it was the same episode every day, which could get taxing for people who are not nursery school students, right. I find it very— pleasant and sweet and and it's a show I have a lot of affection for but it does not grip me and have this like hold on my emotions the way shows that I watched when I was in nursery school yeah nursery school and a little older you know there's you can't go back and have an old friend right like Hmm. those are those are the things that are totally locked Um, and I think it's you know, I think that's why people have so so many feelings about stuff like the Muppets because it was part of your life for as long as any pop well, culture. There is. Like it's not, and there's Sesame Street, and there's the Muppet Show, and there's maybe Muppet movies depending on how old you are and which Muppet movies you came of age with. Right. And everyone has sort of come to the Muppets at some point in childhood, and and there's going to be some attachment there, and and. I don't know. That's why I was so emotional writing about Sesame Street and talking about it over the last couple of days with people. Everyone has had this like very, very strong reaction to it and and said like, oh, I remember this episode or like, oh, this is the one I used to always – we would reenact this one with my babysitter or whatever. (laughs) Oh, my grandma always liked to do this person and and having these like really, really strong connections to that. It's Mm. it's 
I don't know. I, it's it was fun to be able to like talk to people about that rather than be like, oh, are you watching the Americans? <laughs> <laughs> there is there there is that, and there's also that you know that other thing, which is it's not just being a child and seeing a well crafted, well written, imaginatively performed TV show. Like that's great in and of itself. But there's also this other factor, which you know I. I think I experienced, which is Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood and other shows that were of that caliber, aimed mm-hmm. at kids, they showed me a world in which parents, adults, were really, really, really committed to their kids, to really talking about, you know, talking to their kids, understanding their kids, listening to their kids who were there for their kids. And, you know, I'm not the first, I'm sure I'm not the only person who's ever lived who can say, like, that was not always my experience. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, and and if that is not always your experience, like that kind of loving, you know, 100 percent present kind of parenting, a show like Sesame Street is not only comfort food, but it also reassures you that there's a different way of of being in a family. There's a different way of being, you know, a parent. There's different ways that adults connect towards children. And those examples of, of, you know, the adults, I mean, like people like Louis and uh, and Bob. And God, everybody, like all Gordon. the adults on the show, Gordon, my God. And yeah, I mean, it's just fantastic. And they were great role models. They were just great role models of like human beings, you know, and it's something to aspire to be. And and that's to me, that's like the real kind of heart of it was there is a sense in which Sesame Street was showing you the world as it should be. Not the world as it is, the way that it should be. And pieces of the world as it is came into the show, but it was ultimately about making things a little bit better. Yeah. So the new season, uh, season 46, has a new closing song, too. And that's like a hella earworm. Like, it's been stuck in my head a lot. But the refrain is that, that the, and it's been like sort of the new motto, I guess, of this season. So I feel like I'm doing weird PR stuff, too. But it's um, like we're growing sm- smarter, stronger, and kinder in every way. And, right. and thinking about it framed as that, because I don't remember kindness per se being such an important part of Sesame Street when I was a kid. Obviously, like taking turns and sharing and stuff like that was part of the curriculum. But the like very direct emphasis on, on raising kind children yeah. struck me as a very contemporary set of thoughts. And I feel and like I was, that's just making it official. Yeah. I feel I feel like like to some degree I mean they've been refining it but I think that's always been a part of it but it's nice that it's sort of I guess in the mission statement now. Yeah, it was notable to me just to hear it be laid out so clearly that um you know obviously I would consider kindness among Sesame Street's values but I would probably loop it more directly under like overall decency. Right. That the, the people are not necessarily so nice all the time, although they are. It's that they're treating each other with a lot of respect and taking each other's concerns very seriously. Right. Kids are have different challenges today and there's sort of different ways that they're going to be navigating the world and I thought it was interesting to see kindness be put up there along with like learning how to read and growing physically taller and stuff that that growing kinder was going to be part of the way that you knew that you were growing up. That's it for this week's episode of the Vulture TV Podcast. Don't forget to email us your questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. That's 646-504-7673. 
The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Sam Dingman and Sarah Abdurrahman, thanks to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. If you like the show, tell your friends and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. I'm Margaret Lyons, and you can find me on Twitter at Margin Charge. I'm Matt Zoller Sites, and you can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller Sites. Thanks for listening. How to get to Sesame Street.